Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet are Doug, Erica, Tiffany, and Gabby. Uh, Zoya is going to be joining us later for the pet health segment. Today we're covering a few topics that people might want to learn more about, namely uh, lab testing and how effective is lab testing, um, when do you need to get it, when don't you, uh, the dangers of getting false results, um, and some other things that you can do regarding uh, checking your own levels of various things, um, and cholesterol, uh, the myths around uh, cholesterol, what is high, what is low. Um, there's there's a big scare right now going on about cholesterol levels, uh, so we're going to cover that a little bit, and we are also going to go over blood pressure. There's some interesting things regarding that too. So, um, but I think first uh, today we'll go to some of the uh, health items that are in the news this past week. And uh, Erica, you wanted to uh, to cover a few things regarding the recent vaccine hysteria that's been sweeping the media. Yes, since our discussion last week, um, information has gotten lively, to say the least. And I just wanted to uh, share um, some stuff that was carried on SOT Health and Wellness this week. One of them was a an article on February 4th uh, by John Rappaport, who writes pretty extensively about the medical cartel. And he just reported that Patrick Howley at the center the Daily Caller reports that William Thompson, the CDC whistleblower, has been given immunity from prosecution by the federal government to testify before Congress about vaccine fraud at the CDC. And he adds a cautionary note that the Daily Caller is the only source for this story so far. But it's hmm. interesting considering our discussion last week, and um, it's obvious that a political battle is taking place and uh, regarding mandatory vaccination versus parental rights to choose. And what was interesting in the article is uh, presidential candidates Chris Christie and Ron Paul made statements supporting, to one degree or another, parents' rights to choose. And the medical experts, quote-unquote, have invaded TV news to slam these statements as grossly irresponsible. Um, He goes on to say that these are the same experts who always answer the call when some element of the medical cartel is under threat of exposure. Their job Mm -hmm. is to provide cover, sound, authoritative, and make medical critics into dangerous people. And uh, so you can see it's really, it's almost like damage control is happening. Uh, Another article that was carried last week uh, called Vaccine McCarthyism and... um, the flaws in the vaccine paradigm has a little uh, blurb from the Council on Foreign Relations. And um, the largest outbreaks of infectious diseases are within the most highly vaccinated populations, especially the case from measles, mumps, rubella, polio, pertussis. USA, Canada, EU, Australia, Japan, and New Zealand have the highest vaccinations rate and they lead the list. The Office of Medical Science and Justice analyzed the report and concluded clearly that herd immunity is failing and flawed 
given repeated incidences of infections, outbreaks in populations with 94% or more vaccine compliance, emergence of new viral strains and concept of herd immunity should be forgotten. And uh, so it's, it's like, as I said, like damage control, you know, the information is coming out. In that article I just shared, the conclusion is the vaccine establishment is desperate. Uh, the ghosts of their fraud science, manipulated research, misleading propaganda across mainstream media and in the blogosphere are turning, are returning to haunt them. Pro-vaccine mm-hmm. pundits are rapidly losing credibility as increasing number of parents and young adults educate themselves about vaccine efficacy and their health risks. If it were left for an open scientific debate between pro-vaccinators and those opposing vaccines, the former would not have sound science on their side. Mm -hmm. So, and I know Tiffany has something to share along that line as well. So it seems the information is coming out fast and furious. Yeah, there was a... uh a cardiologist in Arizona. He calls himself the paleo cardiologist. His name is Dr. Jack Wolfson. Um, and the last week of January, there was a um, like a local Arizona news uh, channel that had him on there. And uh, one of his quotes was that <clears throat> uh, we should never inject chemicals into ourselves and into our children in order to boost our immune systems. He thought that. Um, Children catching a wild virus like measles, chicken pox was actually good for their immune system. I guess he had the the gall to say this on the news, but to give credit to the the local news reporter, uh, they gave him a fair amount of time. They didn't like immediately come in and debunk him, though they did have a more mainstream scientific view on vaccination after him, but they didn't go after him with you know pitchforks. But now it turns out that he is currently under investigation by the Arizona Medical Board just for this news story that came out in the last week of January. So, um, yeah, this vaccine hysteria, it seems like it's reaching, like, epic proportions. So I'm sure it's always been, like, a danger for any um, medical practitioner to go against the party line on vaccines, but they're going after this paleocardiologist right now. You know, we have the um, the whole measles outbreak hysteria that's going on. So this, it seems like it's going to be like a, a hot topic, maybe even in the next presidential election, because now they're asking um, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama about their their views on vaccination. And what's really yeah, interesting is, is, like you said, this, the CDC states that the overall vaccination rate is 92%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it will. I mean, it's already kind of creeping its way into politics. Yeah, and there was also a, a pretty hysterical event going on surrounding these vaccines. Um, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny uh, she was going to go on an Australian tour, and she is anti-vaccine. Uh, but she had to cancel her tour because she was getting threats of violence, like bomb threats. So she mm. had to cancel. Yeah. 
I have her press release here from uh, January 27th, 2015, uh, Brisbane, Australia. Ms. Stephanie Messenger and Dr. Sherry Tenpenny have jointly decided to cancel the speaking appearances scheduled for Brisbane, Sydney, Adelaide, Melbourne, and Gold Coast. The determination was made to protect the speakers, the public, and the venue owners as pro-vaccine extremists have made continual anonymous threats of vandalism and violence. Uh, quote, we have reached a point where we can no longer guarantee the safety of those attending the seminar, said Ms. Messenger. Some people were planning to bring babies. The threats have been persistent, and we are not able to ensure that the attendees would be safe from harm. Uh, they also received uh, bomb threats, apparently mo multiple bomb threats, against the venue owners and their families in some of the cities originally scheduled for the Healthy Living Seminars. Um, it says here, uh, uh, pro-vaccine people have been sabotaging venues and have threatened to disrupt the normal business operations of the locations during the meetings. Derogatory and false messages have been written about venue locations online, such as uh, on Hotels.com, and uh, they've been bullying the location owners into canceling these venues, which was successful. I mean, they can't, you know, if there's a threat of violence like mm. that, then uh, there's there's really not much you can do. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like Erica said last week. It's the the you know the the pro vaxxers are kind of the the new pro lifers, you know, camped out in front of uh, abortion clinics, uh, threatening the health and safety of people working there. Yeah. Yeah, and Dr. Yeah, Sherry Tenpenny is quoted as saying, you know, um, large the largest most powerful industry in the world is big pharma. So the fact that she was going to come out and, and try and give health advice to concerned parents is, um, you know, it's like taking a stab at the beast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see reason. how it unfolds. Yeah. Talk about reason debates. I mean, you know, they can uh, they can go onto the major news outlets and uh, promote vaccines all they like. Uh, but as soon as you go against that position, you know, you receive threats of violence. And uh, even just in day-to-day -day conversations with people, the language turns somewhat verbally abusive. And um, mm -hmm. it's really it's really getting interesting. Yeah, I'll just read one so, last thing before we carry on. Um, in the New York Times on February 1st, uh, this the uh, Frank Bruni did an editorial, and he states that the measles outbreak is a result of wealthy, educated people who deliberately didn't vaccinate their children. He refers to measles as the scourge once essentially eliminated in this country is back, when in fact it never left. And he refers to all links between autism and MMR vaccines as having been discredited. Yes, he uh, yet he obviously doesn't read the research from the U.S. Mm -hmm. and around the world, you know. So it's it's just more little sound bites where there's no uh, supporting evidence to back up these claims, and that's what people hear again and again is the lies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure there's no way they would allow some kind of a major uh, debate to happen, you know, on on network television or something, because if the science was laid out in a reasonable way, people might think twice about it. Um, but they, it just like the, uh, the tactics of Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly and, and those kind of talking heads, um, just cut you off, call you an idiot and, uh, move mm -hmm. on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Especially considering, I mean, there was uh, research done recently that found that, uh, the measles is spread by those who are vaccinated, even those who are uh, twice vaccinated. 
So the idea that um, you know if you've been vaccinated, you're not spreading it, and everybody who is vaccinated or is not vaccinated is spreading it is just completely fallacious. Yeah. Yeah, there was some new research that came out about the whooping cough, too, uh, or pertussis, um, about the vaccinating children, vaccinated children spreading it to non-vaccinated children. So uh, the mainstream view on vaccines is just backwards, basically. Just take mm-hmm. whatever they say and yeah. turn it around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, if you see the, the science and you see the cases – um, you know, where people have, so they, they get the shot, they get they, any number of vaccines um, in the hospital or anywhere else and are immediately plagued by debilitating conditions. But, you know, of course, according to the establishment, that's just a coincidence. Um, certainly, according to them, there'd be no reason to draw a correlation between injecting something and then five minutes later falling into a coma or some kind of seizure episode. They They must yeah. not be related at all. Certainly. It's a coincidence for sure. Yeah. So well, we have a lot going on there. Um, we have another interesting thing in the news, too, about uh, supplements being carried by uh, large chain stores. Doug, you want to cover that one? Yeah, sure. Um, sorry, I was having a bit of a technical difficulty there. Um, Yeah, so on uh, February 3rd, uh, the New York uh, Attorney General's office um, delivered a cease and desist order to four major retailers, uh, Target, GNC, Walgreens, and Walmart, to uh, stop selling uh, certain dietary supplements. Um, It was taken, the, the action was taken in response to investigation conducted by the Attorney General, in which 78 bottles of popular botanical supplements were obtained off the shelves and were uh, subjected to DNA barcoding analysis. Um, the results of those uh, analyses found that many sampled products contain ingredients other than those listed on the label, and they found that uh, four out of five contain none of the major ingredient listed on the labels. Um, now, this is uh, incredibly controversial. Um, there's been a lot of response from the supplement industry uh, questioning the validity of uh, DNA barcoding testing as a, as a valid analysis. Um, the main problem is that DNA uh, testing is seldom ably, uh, able to properly identify uh, chemical uh, herbal extracts. Like uh, if, if it's an extract of um, a botanical, a lot of the times there's actually no DNA left. Like all they've done is extracted the, uh, the active constituent and they're not actually going to have any of that plant DNA left in there. Um, uh, there are apparently a lot of other tests that can um, identify whether or not the, the actual ingredient is there. Um, and the, uh, a lot of uh, critics have come in and said that the uh, DNA testing should have been backed up by another one of these tests to uh, to kind of, um, you know, v- validate whether or not that test was, was done. Like DNA barcoding is done um, in a lot of – in food situations, it's, it's pretty valid, and they've uncovered fraud where, you know, some expensive sheep milk cheese has been determined to be actually made of cow's milk and um, – you know, people substituting catfish uh, in for, like, expensive grouper. Um, but in, in cases where it's an herbal extract, it really um, it, it requires a bit more than DNA barcoding for, for the reason I just stated. Um, so, of course, this is being used as a platform to kind of decry the entire supplement industry as a big sham and that people don't need to do that. You just need to make sure you're eating healthy and all these kinds of things. But, of course, their definition of eating healthy is going to be questionable at best. Um 
Sure. But also, I mean, you know, this this does also kind of give um, uh, some light to another issue. I mean, you know, the, I'm sure that the supplement industry is not perfect. Um, there probably are some people out there who are not kind of um, doing things by the book as they should be. Um, and I think it really kind of just highlights that you, you really get what you pay for when it comes to this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's going to be surprised if they buy, you know, a cheapy $10 cell phone from Chinatown and, and you know, it, it doesn't work as well as their friend's iPhone 5, right? I mean, obviously, it's not going to have the same functionality, so nobody's surprised at that. So you shouldn't really be surprised when you get these really cheap supplements from these, like, um, you know, generic drugstore brands like Costco brands, um, you know, or these these places that were were targeted here, like uh, like Walmart and Target and GNC and those sorts of things. I mean, you're you're dealing with cheap supplements. Um, you know, you really need to do your research when you're when you're uh, getting a supplement. And yeah, you probably are going to pay more. Um, you know, people are like, well, why should I pay forty dollars for my St. John's Wort when I can get it for five bucks? Well, you, you're obviously making a sacrifice there. Like these aren't just you know um, arbitrary reasons for these pricings. You know, is is your uh, Oh, Doug, did we lose you? I think we did. Yeah, I think we lost them. All right. Well, let's pick up and we'll see if uh, we'll see if we can get Doug back here. I think he was having some technical difficulties with his connection. So it, it seems like uh, this story is more of a case of um, uh, or less less of a case of, of actually regulating this industry and more of a case of, of giving an excuse to discredit uh, supplements on large. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Do you think this is actually some kind of a, a conscionable, you know, regulatory motion or is this? I think, yeah, I think you're, yeah, like they're taking advantage of uh, this particularly finding, but most supplements out there are really good quality certified well, you got to get them, you know, you got to pay <laughs> not necessarily good money, but, you know, in health shops, um, even uh, uh, certain brands have re- reliability over and over again. And uh, there are no adverse effects reported for taking high doses of these supplements, of these vitamins and minerals, you know, so that the industry is taking advantage of this particular finding where, you know, these people took advantage, sold cheap supplements, and they were found to be a scam. It doesn't apply to all supplements. That's the main point. Right. Yeah, and I think like well, Doug was saying, you, you have to be careful what you, you get what you pay for. I think this article can be seen more as like a, a cautionary tale to not shop the big box stores for your supplements. If you really value sure. what you're getting in your supplements and you value your health, you're going to really want to research the best supplement companies, um, the best supplements that have the fewest fillers in them. So you want to make sure that right. you're getting the best bang for your buck. You don't want junk. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's where true. Sorry, I got cut off there. Oh, oh no problem. Glad you're back. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that that there's a couple of things you should look for in a supplement company. Um, one thing is that they are uh, testing the raw materials that come into their um, their facility. Um, you know, if they're not doing this, then you know they're kind of just relying on the um, 
the quality and the the ethics basically of, of whoever their raw material uh, suppliers are. Um, you kind of want to make sure they're doing testings for microbiological contaminants, heavy metals, and other environmental contaminants like pesticides, herbicides, that sort of thing. Um, look sure. for any third-party testing involved. That's especially important in like fish oil supplementation. Um, are they taking steps to avoid GMOs? Um, yeah, um, and and just yeah, like like others were saying there, you know, that this all these steps cost money. So um, you know, don't yeah. don't be surprised if you if if you know the the companies that you find that are taking these steps are going to be priced a little bit higher than the other ones. And right. also just to, to also say that. You know, is is it really any wonder when when some people will will say, oh yeah, you know, I tried that supplement and it didn't work. Well, where were you getting the supplement from? You know. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Doug, as a as a nutritionist, uh, what do you think about the? Um, no, I was just reading recently about um, oil derived supplements that things like um, ascorbic acid can actually be dis distilled down from oil in their raw chemical form. You know refined and then removed uh, as opposed to like a food source vitamin. Um, mm. Now I realize that, you know, thinking that your vitamins come from oil sounds kind of gross, but is there really that much of a difference? Do, pe do people want to look for stuff that comes from food sources or what's the, uh, the major difference there? Yeah, it's a tricky issue um, because, yeah, there are, uh, you, you know, people are very concerned about where, you know, what is the raw material for it. Um, but really, I mean, once something's been refined down, um, if it's chemically uh, identical, then it, it makes you wonder what the um, why does it matter? You know, why why does it matter if the original vitamin C came from a um, an orange or um, an ear of corn or um, you know maybe from like yeah some sort of petrochemical or something like that? Um, and I, I'm kind of, of of two different minds of it. Um, you know, it, it, I think that um, generally, even if it is chemically identical, you do want to support people who are doing things like um, avoiding GMOs, um, not because there's a danger of contamination with GMOs necessarily, more just because you don't really want to be supporting that industry. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would, right. I would personally much rather um, be taking a, a vitamin C supplement that comes from um, a non-GMO food source, and I know that the, uh, the company has kind of taken, um, taken steps to be sure um, that they, they are getting uh, something that doesn't support that industry. Uh, I mean, the same could be said for the petrochemical industry as well. Um, so yeah, sure. I mean, there's I'm kind, like I say, I'm kind of of two two minds about it. You know, if, um, I've heard people say like, you know, vitamin C is vitamin C. If you get if it's got the if it's chemically identical to vitamin C, then it's vitamin C, and it doesn't really matter where it's coming from. So yeah, right. it's, it's a good a good question, and I'm, I'm kind of uh, I guess a little bit undecided on it. Sure. Well, I suppose uh, you know if people really wanted to find out, they could just uh, track down the company that they're looking at, um, you know, look them up online, find their contact information, uh, give somebody a call. That may be kind of hard to get through to them, but you can at least give it a shot and say, hey, I'm a concerned consumer. Um, I want to check out your product, but I need to know some more information about where your sources are from. And, uh, you know, if it's not like a trade secret or anything, it seems like they would they would want to or at least In my experience, most, uh, most companies are, pr are pretty open to having a dialogue well, with their customers. Sorry, say that again, Doug. 
Oh, I, just, I was just saying that I, in my experience, um, the vast majority of, of uh, companies are open to having a, a dialogue with their with their consumers. Okay. Yeah, I'd say if they're not, they're probably hiding something. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Reassuring. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's um, let's let's move along a little bit. One of our topics today was um, uh, was going to be lab testing. Uh, we were talking about this before the show, and um, talking about you know how how necessary is it to get a test done now? If you have insurance, uh, depending on if you have chronic conditions or anything like that, your primary uh, care physician may um, you know get, have you get regular lab work done, or say if you have a uh, you know a genetic condition uh, and you're worried about your children, you may get lab work done for your children once a year, things like that. Um, course there are cases where it's appropriate and there are uh, cases where it's not appropriate there are some cases where um, the the results of the test can actually be wrong um, and uh, Gabby was going to talk about the uh, the school of thought around lab work a little bit I just want to say real quick um, we have to get this in here for the uh, for the lawyers the uh, the views and opinions expressed in this show are not intended to constitute medical advice I uh, want to be very clear about that. So if you have further questions, we really encourage you to do your own research and consult your, uh, consult your own healthcare practitioner before you make any medical decisions for yourself or for your family. Well, we just need to be straight up about that. So um, with that in mind, uh, Gabby, do you want to talk a little bit about lab work and lab testing? What's good? What's bad? What's the details about that? Yeah, there is really a lot on this topic. Let's see. <laughs> If we can clarify yeah. <laughs> at least a few things. <laughs> well, sure. yes, I have seen. Um, um, I work on the public healthcare system, but I have had correspondence from all over the world, and I have read many, many books and articles of the North American school. I realized that, yeah, I noticed that in North America there is a lot more lab work done and the rest of the world, so to speak. It is like the same thing with the industry. You can find, you know, it, uh, it brings good revenue, but it, it, is also, it also has good applications, um, depending on the detective work that your uh, patient is doing with their physician and so forth. But in general terms, when a physician, a healthcare provider asks, for an annual blood work or some basic blood work, what they ask is a um, few basic things like kidney function test, liver function test, electrolytes, uh, red blood cell count, white blood cell count, coagulation factors, and maybe other parameters like uric acid and fasting blood sugar. As we have seen in previous shows, you know, a diet rich in sugar, a diet rich in carbohydrates is what, you know, prematurely ages you. It's like it cuts your longevity short. It produces inflammation. It's really bad for your health. So when people are changing their diets and cutting out sugars, carbohydrates, they can um, measure their progress more or less by by focusing or by checking certain parameters, just to give a general idea. For example, fasting blood sugar. And then, you know, depending on the lab, but, you know, as an international thing, uh, fasting blood sugars 
up to 126 milligrams per deciliter are considered normal. And uh, I want to clarify here that this is already too much at the back in blood sugar. After that number, a person is considered diabetic, di uh, yes, that has diabetes, uh, when measured in two separate times. But better studies actually showing that over 85 milligrams per deciliter, it's uh, already a little bit too much. It's, um, it's uh, linked with heart attacks and strokes. And uh, men with fasting glucose levels over this level may have up to 40%, 40% increasing risk of death from cardiovascular disease. So that's the first, you know, meat, so to speak. That yeah. is regarding with uh, fasting blood sugar levels. Like most people, at least in the uh, forum discussion at talk.net, when they do the diet, yes, usually they have a uh, very low blood sugar levels at fasting level. And they don't have symptoms of, of low sugar levels, like when you get very angry, cranky, you know, and anxious. No, they are pretty much very stable. They feel great. And nonetheless, they have uh, low sugar levels. And that's actually a very good guide that you're doing very well on the diet. Other people that tend to have higher uh, fasting blood sugar levels, maybe it is because of too much stress, and yes, maybe there is something going on there. So just, uh, just that comment to give an idea. I don't know. Do you guys know your sure. blood, your fasting blood sugar levels, or no? <laughs> I don't. No, I've never I've tested mine before, and um, uh, fasting was probably around eighty, and I've yeah. checked oh, it. Really yeah, a couple hours after I've eaten like a a bacon egg uh, sausage breakfast. And it was maybe a little higher than 80, but it was still in the 80s. So, yeah, if you're wow. doing the keto diet or you're low-carb or no-carb, uh, having a fasting blood sugar of 80 is probably good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's very remarkable because you ate mm -hmm. something. It was not fasting, so that's even better. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I had, the same, I had the same thing. You know, I... I did my my lab test, and after eating bacon and eggs, because you know I didn't have time to do the lab work on another day, and yes, it was uh, like seventy eight. It, it mm -hmm. was even less than eighty, and no. <laughs> that was not even bad. Hmm. Wow. So yes. Then, so Gabby, would you say that? Uh, yes. w would you say that? Uh, say someone who is not aware you know, of of any conditions um, and maybe uh, just a person who's of, you know, moderate to good health uh, going through their day. They have no debilitating uh, chronic things, anything like that. Um, you know, they uh, but they may go into the doctor and the doctor wants to run a bunch of uh, tests because that's mm -hmm. just kind of what they do. You were saying in Europe that you guys generally run less testing overall than we do in America. And I know here, if you go to the doctor, they got to test you for everything, just to make just to drive that bill up to get to the insurance company. In my opinion, yeah, that's true, and also because of the options. Like I have, had, I have had people from North America who ask specifically for functional medicine testing, like they test for vitamins, antioxidants, other than you know hormones and uh, even genetic testing for mutations that make makes them predisposed for Alzheimer's disease and 
that's uh, right. yeah, that's uh, that's very nice to have to see, but you know, that's a substitute you need for doing lifestyle changes, like diet changes, you know, right. stress reduction measurements, and you know, and stuff like that. Still, a pretty good diet. Cool. I mean, if there yeah. was a case where, say, uh, say you had, uh, you know, let's say hypothetically three uncles, you know, you have your your parents and then you have your your father has three brothers and two of those three brothers died from heart attacks in their late 40s. That would give you some indication that you want to get tested out for clotting factors. I mean, is that something that's valid to think like you want to look at your family history to see what you might want to get some lab work done for? Oh, yes, that's definitely the case. You want to see the the family history, but also the person's, you know, personal medical history just to give some sure. guidance on which tests to ask because there's really so many options. And this is where each person can become a part of the team with the doctors, so to speak, like do some research and, you know, and even ask for specific tests. And doctors should be able to, like, you know, see their patients as part of the team, you know, as, a, as an equal, not necessarily as a, you know, authority figure that, that is not open to to any other idea or, or test. Um, and also uh, going into the lab ranges that, you know, most mainstream physicians consider normal, like we spoke about testing blood sugar, but there are also other parameters uh, specifically glycated immobilin. It's called HbA1c. It's, it is usually done only in diabetics because it actually it's a measure of how much uh, blood sugar fluctuations you had during the last three months, and it's basically measuring how much your red blood cells are caramelized, are glycated, how much sugar you took in, and uh, the Lab work usually says that around 6% is normal. And again, we're seeing more and more research uh, pointing out that 6% is already too much glycation for your red blood cells. It puts you at risk for atherosclerosis, cataracts, osteoarthritis, and so forth. Ideally, less than 5%. And most people doing a low-carb diet, you know, a keto diet, a paleo diet, they have the lowest um, glycated hemoglobin levels we have all seen, like, <laughs> ever, <laughs> like, recorded since we started measuring this between four and five. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so that's a, a really good indication that these types of diets are, are really pro-longevity, you know. And that's sure. something that's jumping in here. Yeah. About the uh, the, the yeah. hemoglobin the hemoglobin A1C test, um, there was a guy who was doing his own in one experiment. He had started on the the keto diet. He was very low carb, um, but he noticed that his hemoglobin A1C test came up a little higher than he expected. So when you look at this test, you have to um, keep in the back of your mind that the lifespan of a red blood cell usually and most people is around 100 to 120 days. But there are individual variations in the red blood cells lifespan. Um, And if you are eating a diet that is lower in carbohydrates and hence glucose, your red blood cells might live a little bit longer 
so they might have a little bit more time to become glycated. So if you are on a, a low-carb diet and your hemoglobin A1C is a little higher than you would expect it to be, that could be a reason. Um, your red blood cells are probably a little a little bit older than in uh, most populations. Yeah, that's a good point because uh, sometimes we forget that it measures the last three months. Mm-hmm. And also another thing is there's like anemia, like a really low count of red blood cells. Or if a person hasn't, it's, uh, it's, uh, has not uh, taken enough liquids, it's dehydrated, then uh, it could create an artifact and, you know, produce a higher measure than you usually have. Mm-hmm. So, yes, with those two parameters, you can really measure how much sugar you're taking. Is it really affecting you? It gives you a guide, fasting blood sugar and glycated hemoglobin. Then the other good um, parameter to include in your annual blood work is the G-reactive protein, which is a marker of inflammation. And we know that inflammation is really behind all diseases, modern diseases specifically, you know. It's really, you really want, if you have inflammation, then you are ill. <laughs> so that's a, a good one to include to see if you have a pure-reactive protein as a marker of inflammation. Now, just to be then, clear, what's the, uh, what's, the letter, what's the letter that's coming before reactive there? Is that C or G? Yes, C. And there's there's ultra-sensible C-reactive protein and C-reactive protein in general. And that's actually a marker that is more strongly linked with cardiovascular disease more than cholesterol, you know. Mm. Speaking of, um, real real quick before, I wanted to get one more question to you before we move on to cholesterol. Uh, Mm -hmm. Hair test, hair analysis. Let's say that I have uh, some fillings, which I do. Uh, which I've been thinking about getting removed, the uh, the amalgam fillings. And uh, just to check, I want to get a, a hair analysis done to check my mercury levels. Um, yeah. Do you think that's worth it at all, at all? Or is a blood test always better than a hair test? Is a hair test okay for basic information? Um, well, a hair analysis is a really good guidance, but actually the best test for heavy metal is a 36-urine heavy metal toxic test using a challenging agent with DMSA or DMPS. DMSA or DMPS, these are collating agents. It actually binds to heavy metals in your body and makes it so that it gets excreted through the urine. So the urine gets collected and they measure that. That's the best test for heavy metals. And for heavy metals, even this test might not be, you know, 100% reliable. There is not really a 100% reliable test, actually, because personal sensibilities will make it so that a teensy amount of mercury, for example, can be very toxic to me, but it can be very, you know, it can give you no symptoms to you, for example. So we come here to personal, you know, sensibilities, but yeah, like a challenging urinary test is the best test we have for it. Or heavy metals right now. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, um, would you? Uh, you had a few things to say on cholesterol. Do you want to help transition us into that? And then we're going to have to. Uh, we're going to have to go to Zoya for the pet health segment uh, shortly here because she has a limited amount of time with us uh, today. 
So, um, but why don't you introduce us with the to cholesterol with the, the points that you had queued up there? Yeah, yes, on cholesterol oh, yeah. levels. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, so maybe yeah, we could maybe do could give an intro an introduction, and then you know I'll give a little a few things that that are missed on the on this topic. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, sure. Thanks. What, one thing I did want to say about kind of testing in general um, <clears throat> was just just to say this quickly. Um, I think like you know, in, in a lot of cases, people are using testing as as kind of a, um, an incentive to do other things like change their diet, change their lifestyle, and that sort of thing. And I think that people kind of have it backwards that way. In a lot of cases, mm-hmm. I think what you know, when you think about if worst case scenario, what in this test showed that that everything was going wrong, what would I do? Well. I would change my diet, I would change my lifestyle, I would like, you know, start getting more serious about these sorts of things. I think that really the best way to use testing is to do all that stuff first. Change your diet, change your lifestyle, um, make all those uh, important changes, uh, and then do tests to see if you're on track. Um, It it seems like that's kind of a, a better way to go about things because, you know, realistically, if you're using testing in the opposite direction, you're kind of seeing what you can get away with. You know, can I get away with not um, not being on the ketogenic diet? Um, can I get away with not exercising? You know, those sorts of things. I think it's it's uh, it, it's a better approach to kind of make these changes, and then yeah, see see uh, do the test maybe to see if if you're on track or if there's any kind of problem that you're having. Um, if if you're not getting uh, you know the results that you expected to be getting, um, you know, is there something going wrong? Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. moving moving on sorry. to uh, sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to echo what you said. So essentially, just using it as a um, as a guide uh, to bolster the decision you've already made to get healthy, as opposed to using it as a reason or an excuse to get healthy. Like you should just go ahead and work on the healthy part, and then use the test as a guide for that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so anyway, yeah, talking a little bit about uh, cholesterol tests. So the typical test you get from your uh, from your doctor for cholesterol. Um, you know, it, for one thing, it's testing plasma cholesterol levels. So that's the amount of cholesterol that's in your blood. Um, it actually has little to nothing to do with the actual cellular cholesterol, like what you actually have in your cells, including in your arteries. So it, 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 it's of questionable uh, use right there. Um, so what they're typically testing is uh, serum cholesterol levels, which is sometimes referred to as your total cholesterol. Um, serum triglycerides, which are like fats in the blood, um, HDL cholesterol, and LDL cholesterol. Now, just to tell you a little bit about those, because I find that a lot of people, there's a lot of misconceptions about what that is. Um, HDL and LDL are actually carrier protein molecules, well, lipoprotein molecules. So they're what actually carries cholesterol through the blood, because cholesterol can't just be in free form in the blood. So when they're testing um, your HDL and LDL levels, what they're actually testing is the amount of cholesterol that's in your HDL and your LDL carriers. So, you know, you see these numbers on a, on a test and you kind of think, okay, well, that's how much of the um, HDL um, particles that I have in my blood. Well, that's actually not the case. What they're measuring is how much of the cholesterol in your blood is carried by HDL and, um, and LDL. And I know um, Gabby's actually going to get into a little bit of how um, the LDL cholesterol measure is actually usually not very accurate and the reason for that. Um, But, uh, yeah, I'll just go on here. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to note that these these measures are not um, actually very accurate as regards to how much of these particles you actually have in your blood. Um, you know, there's a, a huge variation in um, you know how many particles you might actually have and how much cholesterol is actually in there. If you have great big huge HDL cholesterol, uh, HDL um, particles, they're going to hold a lot more cholesterol than a lot of smaller HDL particles. Um, and as it turns out, uh, you want to have actually more small HDL particles because they are better at doing all the beneficial things that HDL is, is credited with, like being an antioxidant for one thing. Um, and uh, in the opposite end, um, with LDL cholesterol, um, you actually want to have less total number of LDL particles. So the big fluffy um, cholesterol loaded LDL cholesterol is um, a lot uh, better than having um, a lot of smaller, um, less cholesterol carrying LDL particles because those are the ones that can actually deposit themselves in your arteries and, um, and cause all kinds of havoc and inflammation and atherosclerosis. Um, so anyway, the total, total uh, cholesterol that you see um, on these tests, um, that number really doesn't have uh, much validity to anything. Um, it's never been found to be correlated with, um, with uh, uh, atherosclerosis or cardiac symptoms or anything uh, like that. Um, they, basically, it's just a number. Um, and, you know, despite what's been kind of um, promoted, um, that number is largely irrelevant. But nonetheless, it's used to kind of uh, encourage uh, people to go on to cholesterol-lowering drugs. Um, also interesting to note that the total cholesterol number, um, the acceptable total cholesterol number has gone down and down over the years. Um, a couple of decades ago, if a doctor measured your cholesterol and you were 240 or under, um, that was considered good. Well, that number has come all the way down to 200 now. And um, that's not because they've seen any kind of uh, correlation with high cholesterol and uh, cardiac uh, symptoms. It's, uh, you know, I would speculate that it really has to do with uh, wanting to sell more statin medications and getting more people um, on these uh, best-selling pharmaceutical drugs. Um, yeah. Do you, uh, sorry, Jonathan, sure. do you want to pause here so, so we can um, yeah. go to Zoya's? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Um, you you were yeah. mentioning that it was, was two hundred and forty. Even when I was in med school, the upper limit for normal cholesterol was two hundred and forty. Huh. And before that, it used to be in two hundred and eighty. That was normal. Yeah. So when people have like three hundred cholesterol, oh. it was like, oh, it's okay, just just seems to be higher, <laughs> but not too much. Now it's like, oh my God, you're in the verge of a heart attack. We'll say, you know, an ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So yeah, <laughs> just to give that idea that yeah, 280 was normal. It's probably normal still. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Wow. Also interesting that they, there's been a number of studies that have found under 300, the um, uh, as long as you're under 300, the higher the co your total cholesterol, the less likely you are to die of all causes. Hmm. That's true. Yeah, actually, the lower the your cholesterol, the more predisposed you are for autoimmune diseases and even for women, especially, premature aging and death. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's a fascinating. Let's come let's come back to that shortly. Um, we're gonna we're gonna jump to Zoya here for a second. She has some things to talk about regarding um, pet symptoms and how to read symptoms for different things from your pets. So. Yeah. Can you hear me? Oh yes, we can hear you. <laughs> Well, hello. So, <laughs> yes. So, so today we are indeed going to talk about emergency situations and signs your pets may have that may indicate to you that you have to take your pet to the vet ASAP. Now, um, the problem is that pets not only always show exactly what's wrong with them. It's especially tricky with cats because they are predators and try to hide their weaknesses until the last moment. But the same can apply to other animals as well. So it's important to pay attention to your pets and notice any changes in their behaviors, behavior. Well, it, it's basically pretty natural. You know, you see your pet uh, every day. It's like your family member. Uh, so, uh, you know, animals, uh, they are... Um, uh, they have their routine, daily routine. They are, they like, they have their habits. They love their habits, especially cats. So, so basically, if you have an animal, uh, like a family member, it's not hard to notice uh, how they behave, what they eat, how they eat, uh, what's their, te- what's their, you know, mood, and stuff like this. So, it's easy to notice all the, all the things. Um, also, when you have to go to the vet, you'll be able to tell everything, all the information to the veterinarian. Because the more information you give, a uh, veterinarian has a better picture and, and uh, basically an opportunity to make a better diagnosis. It's called, in uh, medical jargon, it's called anamnesia. It's basically like a life story, life history history of the disease. So in order to understand what caused the disease, uh, they need to understand how you treat your pet, uh, what your pet is doing, how they behave. Okay, so so basically we will mention first uh, 10 main signs that you have absolutely have to, know, to pay attention to and take immediately your pet to the vet. Now, it's it, major trauma, like, uh, you know, if, if there was a fall or your pet was hit by a car, large wounds, broken bones, because it's kind of like, you know, you don't have to get them. But for example, if your pet has pale gums or gums that have a bluish or yellowish color, a rapid breathing, a weak or rapid pulse, change in body temperature, difficulty standing, uh, apparent paralysis, uh, loss of consciousness, seizures, uh, bloating, and excessive bleeding. Now we will talk a bit. Uh, we will talk a bit about those signs, uh, so you will understand them better. Like, uh, for example, if you have, if your pet has a uh, difficulty breathing, labored breathing, pale or blue gums, uh, or tongue. Something stu- maybe there is something stuck in their mouth or throat, and maybe there is something wrong with their heart. 
So if you see some that, something like this, it's a really emergency situation. Uh, basically, there, there, there is a need for medical intervention and also a professional intervention. Now, there is, it's possible that there will be bleeding that does not stop from any part of the body. Um, if there is some local bleeding, just apply direct pressure to the wound and seek help immediately. But if you see that like there is a bleeding like from all kinds of parts, then if possible that there was poisoning. There are specific red poisons that cause um, anticoagulant effect. Basically, your blood stops from uh, clotting. It's, it's very and, and it's, it's the most insidious because there is a delay effect. If, for example, if your dog ate something that had the poison, usually cats usually cats don't get poisoned. You know, they don't have poisoning of this kind because they are I don't know they are more they can sense it. They are more careful. But dogs like Labradors that uh, they dogs with natural they can basically and it, is, it will take a couple of days before the first symptoms will appear. So, so it's important that somebody can die very quickly unless you will take him to the vet. Now, uh, another... Zoya, can, can you repeat? If you can, can hear, you hear me, me, you're cutting out just a little bit. We, You're cutting out just oh. a little bit, but we can hear most of what you're saying. Can you just repeat that last part about how... Uh, Symptoms may take uh, two or three days to to manifest. Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, so for example, basically very of this manifest. The first symptom, the bleeding, the stop. So for instance, they will take. Yeah. So, so it's very important that you will take your pet immediately to the vet because. Uh, because it's a sign that the blood uh, stopped clotting, that specific mm -hmm. uh, enzymes in the uh, in the liver stop produced, and so it's a it's a situation. Uh, there is a need basically, or maybe you can help your pet as well if you have uh, vitamin K, uh, but specifically K1, not K3. Specifically K1, wow. maybe you can buy it in the. Maybe, well, maybe we will have another show where I will say what would be great for pet owners to have at home in emergency cases, something they can do by themselves. But but yeah, they can get they can buy uh, vitamin K1. That that is basically the treatment in such cases. Hmm. Uh, now another another dangerous situation is uh, when dogs, especially big dog, big uh, breed. Dogs like a German Shepherd uh, have their stomach bloated uh, or swollen uh, because it's it's possible it's very common in the in those breeds for their stomach to become twisted and uh, so if you see something unusual like this uh, if they become a little bit apathic and their stomach because it becomes like a big ball uh, it's a really emergency situation. So take them immediately to the vet. Now, it's possible also uh, to see loss of consciousness, a sort of collapse, uh, where a pet uh, is too weak to stand. Now, uh, there can be several reasons for it. It can be a neuro neurological problem. It can be toxin. Um, 
and it can be some sort of injury. Another another possibility in especially in small breeds like Yorkies, York uh, Yorkshire Terrier, and um, Toy Terrier, that they may become hypoglycemic. Uh, so in such situation, you can help them uh, basically by yeah, it it it, it, it may be counterintuitive, but but it really helps. You can give them a bit of sugar, uh, so you can maybe prevent from uh, from the situation of loss of consciousness developing into coma, and also to take sure. immediately the pet to the vet. Now so they if they can do, if they if, yeah. if they do pass out, you would just uh, just put a little bit of sugar on their tongue. Yeah, if it's a small breed, and for example, oh. there is not it's there, it, it's not hot outside. Like for example, if it's a hot weather. Uh, it's hot outside. It can be over. It can be also overheating. Uh, but it but ah. it happens mostly to breeds like heliocephalic uh, breeds, like pugs uh, and bulldogs. Uh, breeds like that they have you know already have a, a, you know a predisposition for all kinds of respiratory problems. So uh, excessive heat and in this case, cool water. But if it's a of, uh, small breed, like a uh, toy terrier, then giving them a bit of sugar, them a bit of sugar may help. And then in any case, because it can the hydration, the infusion, you know, so there can be seizures. Uh, like for example, um, Sheltie breed predisposed to be. Uh, they can be with any sudden weakness, um, and a very serious of vomiting and diarrhea, vomiting or violent episodes. You know, sometimes owners think that, oh, well, my pet will, you know, there is a diarrhea, there is some ingestion, or you know, for cats like hairballs and the dogs and vomiting. And yeah, said, certainly. It's important to pay attention to your vet and, it's, and and his usual their usual behavior. If they tend to vomit hairballs and stuff like this, then then you can see you know like the um, for you know the um, frequency of such events. And if you see that there sure. is some uh, blood. Immediately take them to the vet because maybe maybe so something maybe, yeah. We uh, we're having a really hard time hearing you right now. It's it's very choppy. Um, so I just wanted to uh, to make sure that last part you had said that um, uh, of course violent vomiting is 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 bad. In that in that case, you would want to take them. You know, if they were vomiting violently, you want to take them directly to the vet. Um, yeah, because it can uh, it can lead to severe dehydration and shock. Ah, uh, sure. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so so I'll just uh, you know other things that I wanted to mention, like for example, uh, inability to deliver puppies or kittens. If your pregnant cat or dog uh, has gone more than three to four hours between delivering, then then you really need to take. Uh, 
to take them to the vet to basically help finish the job. Okay. And um, uh, loss of balance or consciousness, uh, maybe other symptoms like, <coughs> yeah, excuse me, like for example, uh, high temperature. It's important to remember mm. that pets have, uh, both dogs and cats have normal higher temperature than humans. There are some pet owners that come to the vet and say, oh my God, my pet has a fever, you know, like with a, a 38.5. It's normal for both cats and dogs. It's okay. So so basically, um, but basically any temperature above 40, unless, you're, unless you have a kitten or... Or a puppy, you you really need to take them to the vet. Another case is rapid heartbeat. In general, 160 for dogs and 200 for cats. If you have rapid heartbeat uh, above those um, levels, oh shoot! I think that we lost Zoya. I mean. <laughs> Zoya, can you still hear us? You're, you're dropping out quite badly. Maybe we can yeah. revisit this at a, at a later date. Would that be okay? <laughs> yeah, sure. So, okay. Really, well, I, I I kind of covered most of it. I just wanted to mention purring, that uh, it, it's, uh, it's very cute, and it's basically activating the vagus nerve. That's what cats do. But um, right. purring, can, they can also purr when they're so basically, people should pay attention to it too. And that's it. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate you coming on. We'll uh, yeah. we'll see what we can do about making this a, a better connection um, in the future, so that we can we can hear mm -hmm. more of this important information. But thank you. Um, and uh, if yeah. anybody has. Uh, thank you. Uh, questions. We'll we'll post some resources in our show description here from uh, from what Zoya had had covered today. Um, maybe that people can check out for further information about how to read symptoms from their pets. So let's uh, let's revisit here the um, the topic that we uh, that we were covering, which was a uh, cholesterol. Um, Gabby, are you uh, still on the line there? Yes. To wrap it up, okay. basically your cholesterol panel, something that, uh, you know, uh, explains um, a good cholesterol panel is one that is low in triglycerides. It's high in HDL cholesterol, also known as good cholesterol. And it's um, normal or even a little bit higher in LDL cholesterol. But as, as long as you have low triglycerides and high HDL, you can have a pretty good idea that your LDL cholesterol is pretty much composed of anti-inflammatory particles. The other thing to keep in mind is that when you have very low triglycerides, which is very good because that means that you don't, you're not eating inflammatory carbohydrates, but when you have low triglycerides, it produces an artifact in the lab work and it increases a 25% your LDL cholesterol, but this is an artifact. It's not really a real increase in LDL cholesterol. So that's the other thing that you have to keep in mind. Your LDL cholesterol might be actually lower when you have low triglycerides. And the most important factor, you know, 
it's not then as we have seen it's not really oh i have high cholesterol you know it's bad when it is low but you want to uh the cholesterol uh when it stays uh for a long time in your blood it has it increases its its chance of getting inflamed oxidized especially if you have a lot of heavy metals going around if you're exposed to a lot of radiation if you are exposed to a lot of inflammatory factors in your environment or food. So the thing to keep in mind as well is one thing that can actually set in flames your cholesterol is iron overload. And this is the one thing that is never asked in an annual blood work and that, you know, you guys, listeners, everybody should ask, you know, ask it right away, you know, or the next one, just to know if you have a lot of iron because if you had a lot of, a lot of iron in your blood, that is oxi- that that is powerful oxidizing agent, inflammatory. You basically ask for ferritin transferring to- total iron binding capacity, and uh, with that you will get an idea, you know, if you have iron overload or not. If your transferring saturation is over forty percent, and your ferritin is above one hundred and fifty you have iron overload to the point that you really need to do like some bloodletting, you know. Ideally, it should be less than 35% of the transferring saturation and the ferritin should be below 100. So, yes, iron overload. Nobody should forget this topic. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this is um, to wrap it up. I just wanted to say one well, one point here. Um, yeah. Uh, there was a study. There was a study done in 2013. I think it was 2013, 2012 or 2013, um, where they they looked at uh, nearly 137,000 patients who were hospitalized for coronary artery disease uh, between 2000 and 2006. Um, and of those uh, patients, only 29.2 percent um, had uh, elevated LDL uh, cholesterol levels. So um, basically, the idea that that uh, LDL cholesterol is is a measure of of your risk is uh, put into serious doubt there when only like less than thirty percent of the patients actually had an elevated uh, LDL cholesterol level. Um, so I, I just wanted to kind of reiterate what I was saying before. It really is about the total particle number, not about the total LDL cholesterol. So um, if you really want to get a good picture of of what your cholesterol um, you know, what your cholesterol levels are, um, the typical panel that's given by your doctor doesn't really give a good indication of this. So um, finding out um, your total LDL particle number, that's really the, uh, the, the kind of the gold standard for finding out what your risk actually is for um, cardiac events. Great. Well, and I think like we emphasized uh, earlier too, um, ideally you want to you want to look into the cause. Like, say you you test high for cholesterol according to the the charts. Although we understand there's some discrepancies there, um, that uh, that you should be looking into why it might be reading that way. So, you know, if you're if you're eating um, a lot of fat plus sugar or fat plus grains, uh, which is not the combinations that you want to be ingesting. Um, you know, the, the ketogenic, the high-fat diet does not include sugar and grains uh, for a very specific reason. 
Um, so <clears throat> you would want to uh, preemptively change your habits, change your diet, um, and and look into the you know the cause of why your cholesterol might be reading high, um, so that you can lower it through natural means instead. And definitely, you know, uh, it, you know, in my opinion, anyway, uh, personal opinion that uh, Lipitor and things like that, and you know, uh, cholesterol lowering drugs uh, should be avoided, and natural means um, and a, a a diet methodology should be employed. Yeah, I think that's definitely true, and it's 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 an important point to be reiterated. The um, you know the medical model is to kind of look at the numbers of cholesterol and then try to lower those numbers. Well, even if you do manage to lower the the numbers there, you're not getting to that root cause of the problem. You're not getting to the why your cholesterol is high. You're just kind of artificially yeah. lowering this arbitrary number. So yeah, I think that's I think that's a very important point. Um, yeah, it's, it's important to get to the root, the root cause of the issue, if there is an issue. Yeah, well, lowering your cholesterol artificially is the most ignorant way to approach it, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see. Um, do we want to uh, to move on to blood pressure for a little bit? Tiffany, you had some material that you were going to cover, and it sounded like you had it right in front of you there. So um, would you like mm -hmm. to uh, talk about blood pressure for a little while? Well, sure, since we're talking about uh, cholesterol and coronary artery disease. So a lot of people who have cholesterol so have high blood pressure. So I'll talk a little bit about uh, blood pressure and the pressure test that measures the pressure in your arteries as your heart pumps. So say you have a blood pressure of um, 122 over 70. The 122 number, the number on top, is your systolic number. Um, that measures the pressure in your arteries when your heart beats, when your heart is in systole, um, which means that your heart muscle is contracting at that time. Um, the bottom number is the diastolic number, and that measures the pressure in your arteries between the heartbeats when your heartbeat when your heart is resting. So blood pressure readings they vary depending on the time of the day. So it's important to not just take one reading and say, oh, I have high blood pressure. You want to test your blood pressure uh, at several different times of the day. Um, your blood pressure is lowest at night while you're sleeping, and it starts to rise right before you wake up. And then um, it usually reaches its peak in the afternoon, and then uh, in the late afternoon to evening, it starts dropping again. So high blood pressure is considered to be a number of uh, 140 over 90 or higher. And this is, again, over several different readings at different times of the day. Um, can contribute to high blood pressure, our stress, pain, and uh, something called white coat hypertension where you go to the doctor's office and you're a little bit nervous <laughs> and stressed just from being at the doctor's office and your blood pressure <laughs> comes up a little higher than uh, it usually would be when you're relaxed and at home. <laughs> so, uh, again, make sure you measure your blood pressure over time. Don't just go by one reading. Um, also, uh, high blood pressure is often referred to as the silent killer because it's not usually associated with symptoms. Like a lot of people think that if your blood pressure is high, you'll have a headache all the time, which is not necessarily true. Um, that can happen sometimes if you're in a hypertensive crisis where your blood pressure is really super high, like 180 over 110 or higher. Um, so uh, 
Yeah, uh, high blood pressure is 140 over 90. A low blood pressure would be anything like 90 over 60 or less. But um, there's a lot of people whose blood pressure usually runs a little low, and it's probably nothing to worry about unless you have symptoms of dizziness, lightheadedness, fainting, nausea, and vomiting, or chest pain. So if your blood pressure is low and you don't have symptoms, it's usually not something to worry about. Um, If your blood pressure is low, one of the first things you want to ask yourself, though, if if you do have these symptoms, is if you're dehydrated. So you probably want to increase your your water intake and not usually get rid of the dizziness and the lightheadedness. Um, Another reason for super low blood pressure is because you suffered some kind of trauma or you're bleeding out or something. And in that case, you have some real big problems and you need to be seen by a doctor. Um, But if you're you're currently on blood pressure medicines, um, you want to work closely with your doctor and try to work your way off of them. I would not advise you just stopping your blood pressure medicines cold turkey. But there are some natural remedies for uh, high blood pressure. These include uh, garlic, fish oil, uh, hibiscus tea. There's been some research on that. Um, Magnesium, vitamin D, and turmeric. So for the actual uh, blood pressure test, the best way to measure it is, you know, if you're at your doctor's office and the nurse comes in, she has uh, the cuff, the inflatable cuff with the stethoscope. That's probably the gold standard. It gives you the most accurate reading. Uh, But there are a lot of, uh, like, home uh, blood pressure cuffs or the ones that you can measure with your wrist. And remember, if you're going to use a wrist monitor, um, put your arm up, like, in the, the range of your heart so you can get a more accurate reading. Now, the the home blood pressure monitors are less precise than the cuff. Uh, the numbers can be off by as much as uh, 15. So uh, if you want to see how accurate your home blood pressure cuff is, if you know somebody who knows how to use the cuff with the stethoscope, um, just have them come over and check your, your blood pressure uh, against your home machine. But even if you can't do that, Uh, The blood pressure machine that you use at home, even though the the number might not be exactly precise, it can give you, like, the range of your blood pressure, and it can tell you if your blood pressure is going up or down. So I wouldn't totally discount home blood pressure machines. However, I can't talk about um, blood pressure without mentioning salt because there's this big myth that salt is bad for you and it causes high blood pressure. So this can be both true and not true at the same time. It just depends on what type of salt you use. But first, um, I wanted to go over um, what's the function of sodium or salt in the body. And sodium is an essential mineral. It's found in the human body, and it's necessary for the brain to be able to send signals to your nerves and your muscles. So if you didn't have enough sodium, your your muscles basically wouldn't function, you wouldn't be able to move, and eventually you would die. So um, sodium is also it's necessary for the absorption of other nutrients, and sodium is needed to regulate fluid, fluid balance and blood pressure. Um, so you need to have a, a delicate balance of sodium and potassium and other minerals in your body as well. So there is table salt which is traditionally used, or real salt, or which can include like um, Celtic salt or Himalayan salt. So table salt 
is highly processed. It can be heated up to 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit, and that makes the salt lose all of its naturally occurring minerals. It still has sodium in it, but it doesn't have like the potassium, uh, the calcium, the magnesium, or any of the other trace minerals. Um, also in table salts, there's a lot of fillers. Uh, synthetic iodide is added. There's anti-caking agents. Um, there's high amounts of potassium iodide and aluminum. And, of course, they bleach it to make it white. So real salt, you won't find that it's pure white. It can be like a grayish color, a tan color, pink. So that's the kind of salt you want to be using because, like I said before, it has 80 other minerals and trace elements in it as well. So if you do have high blood pressure, you really want to look at your, your diet because high-carb diets um, make the kidneys retain salt, and low-carb diets increases the amount of uh, sodium and water that's excreted by the kidneys. I don't know if any of you all have noticed, like when you first went low-carb or keto, that you lost a lot of water weight. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the reason why. I, yeah. even, I even woke up in the night, you know, <laughs> but then yeah. I realized that research shows that it stabilizes, but yeah, you lose a lot of water. Yeah. So not only do carbs make your, your kidneys retain salt, um, they do convert to glucose in the bloodstream and they can stick to the proteins or the albumin in your blood and cause glycation. And that builds up in your arteries and that can cause your arteries to narrow and to harden. So uh, the biggest way to naturally decrease your blood pressure is to decrease your carb intake. So that's what I have about blood pressure. Yes, very good. A lot of folks, you know, uh, normalize their high blood pressure even taking magnesium and potassium. There is very good mm -hmm. research in potassium. And these are electrolytes that mainstream medicine really forgets that it, it, they do exist and they concentrate in calcium, which actually, you know, promotes uh, calcification of the arteries. Mm -hmm. And they forget about magnesium and potassium, which are so important. You know, they're, relax they're relaxing minerals, they stabilize, mm -hmm. you know. Also, there's uh, some interesting history of about the uh, just surrounding salt and how necessary it is that the, the word sal, S-A-L, was Latin um, for salt, uh, which is where we get the word salary from. So it's it's yeah. it's your life-sustaining thing. So I, when you said real salt, I was curious, like, uh, I use that brand. There's a brand called Real Salt. Is that the one you were talking about? Well, not necessarily, but yeah, there there is a brand called Real Salt, and it actually is, and I'm using quotes here, Real Salt. So yeah, <laughs> uh, cool. But there's you know the Celtic <laughs> salt and the Himalayan sea salt and other types of salt. But right. if you're looking at you the salt, the minerals, right? You would you would want something right, that contains right, right. that that variety of minerals. Yeah, because with table salt, it's just sodium chloride and a bunch of fillers added into it. So there's no no natural balance. You want all the other minerals in your salt to kind of balance the sodium. Yeah, I think one of the big problems with the with the um, table salt too is that it's uh, uh, those anti-caking agents you were talking about. 
Because what they're right. essentially doing is, is making it so it no longer um, attracts water, right? Because if you, mm-hmm. if you notice, if you, get, if you get real salt, like unrefined salt, it, it, uh, it attracts water. And, and that's, you know, the function of salt in the body requires that, you know, uh, water follows salt. Like the salt is, is used to, um, you know, create these, these different balances of water in certain places. So if you've got a, a salt that has all these anti-caking agents added to it, it's no longer able to serve that function. So I think right. that's a lot of the problem that you see with, with table salt. Mm. We actually published a thought that in an article recently showing how people who consume table salt, you know, uh, have more autoimmune diseases, you know, and then mm. that's why they were suggesting, you know, again, the salt that Chipani was talking about, Himalayan salt and pink salt. Mm. Yeah, it related to that. Yeah. Well, um, that sounds like, I mean, uh, is there anything else that we want to cover about blood pressure? We've got uh, how to test. Um, Tiffany, when you mentioned those home units, is that something, like, do you have to get that from a pharmacy or is that something you can get from a chain store, you know, if you live near the city or something like that? Oh, yeah, they sell them at Walmarts and buy one online or Walgreens or any drugstore. Yeah, they're not hard to find. They're not too expensive either. But again, you know, don't cool. get obsessed with it. Like Doug said earlier, yeah. you want to do all the things that you should be doing, like change your diet before you go chasing around a bunch of tests. Um, mm-hmm. Just do right. Do that and have the test confirm that you're doing the right thing. Right. I think that speaks to our uh, the mentality in in the West, especially in uh, in America, that you know, I I need. Uh, I need excuses or I need a reason to do something that I already know is good for me. If I, you know, I know it's good for me to change my diet and not to eat uh, Doritos and, uh, you know, Twinkies all day. Uh, But (laughs) for some reason, if people need this, like I need a doctor to tell me not to do that. Um, Or I need a lab work to tell me that I'm, you know, that I'm, I have six months left because I've eaten too many Twinkies in my life. Um, yeah, good luck so having yeah. your doctor tell you to do anything about diet. I mean, I think yeah. sometimes yeah. the best thing you might hear from a doctor is everything in moderation. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just right. actually a, an interesting point on that. Um, I, I knew a guy who um, who had gone to the doctor, had the cholesterol test, was told that, you know, his cholesterol was too high. And the doctor basically said to him, well, you know, you could, you know, change your diet and start to exercise more and all that kind of stuff, but all those those things will get achieved by just taking this pill instead. So we may as well just put you on the medication. Oh, oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I couldn't I couldn't believe it so when he said pathetic. that. Yeah. That's that's a shame. It really is. <laughs> and now it's been been reduced almost to. Uh, uh, a level of, um, uh, I hate to say it, but yeah, quack science, you know, like uh, that people are actually using that term. Um, I won't say where, um, just to, uh, mm-hmm. to allow these people their, their privacy. But uh, I, I was recently in a discussion online. Um, uh, well, I can say it was on Facebook, but it was in a group. And uh, I referred to someone who was a chiropractor and a national pra- a natural practitioner, a naturopath. And, mm-hmm. Um, I got like three or four responses that said, you know, oh, this is pseudoscience and why you can't be peddling this kind of quack science. And I was like, 
when really when did people start thinking that chiropractic was quack science or that nutrition <laughs> was was quack science? I, it a lot of people are thinking that now that if you mention healthy eating, they're like, well, you're nuts. You know, keep your witchcraft to yourself. Yeah. Chiropractors actually yeah. have a nickname. They call them quackopractors. Quackopractors. Yeah, It's <laughs> oh, Like the God. vaccine hysteria is just completely absurd. Yeah. Yeah. So it's unfortunate, but, you know, I mean, I think the best we can do uh, right now is, you know, there are people who do understand um, that there are really effective ways to manage your health naturally. Um, granted, like we said earlier in our disclaimer, you have, you know, we're not offering you medical advice. So um, if you have severe conditions, um, you have emergencies, things like that. You need to take care of that with the, the best way that you think, um, you know, talk to your practitioner, your doctor, whoever they are. Um, of course, you know, if you have insurance, you have to have a, a main, what do they call a primary uh, practitioner. Um, so, of course, you, you have to make that choice for yourself. Um, but there are these avenues that you can research as far as how to take care of yourself naturally, how to manage your blood pressure, um, how to manage your cholesterol, and look at your uh, look at your diet, you know, and look up what you're eating. Um, it's it's a really important thing, and I think people have turned it into an incidental uh, point of interest in their in their life, where, like you guys said, you just use medications to manage it, and um, not even you know, I think they're not even saying in moderation anymore. They're like, basically, just keep doing mm -hmm. what you're doing, and here's a pill to shut off all the symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, but the the body uh, gives us these signals. You know, the inflammation is a signal. Um, you know, uh, itching, running nose, coughing, um, pain, headaches, things like these are all signals from the body that something is wrong, and they all have a different uh, cause. Um and that really needs to be looked into. So instead of just shutting it off uh, with a pill that turns that off, it's it's much better to try to find out where it's coming from and then correct that habit or environmental factor or whatever you've got going on um, so that it doesn't continue just in the background. It's like muting the speaker, you know, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's a little bit more serious than just muting a speaker because in your body, those effects are still happening in the background. So Yeah, definitely. Yeah, very good point. Well, I think I think if you guys are good with it, I'm going to move on to our recipe for today. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to do corned beef. And uh, mm. uh, when we were talking before the show, um, we were talking that, that we should probably point out that corned beef has nothing to do with corn. So <laughs> I don't know how many people are aware of that. that. That was a new point for me, actually, when I learned how to make it. I, I knew that I loved corned beef. And I was like, I really want to make this, but I'm really hoping that there's not corn in it. <laughs> so, um, and then, so when I when I looked it up and learned about it, of course, I discovered that uh, there's not. And um, just a, a general reference here, reading from from Wikipedia, term uh, corned beef comes from the treatment of the meat with large grained rock salt, also known as corns of salt. Um, so it was an old uh, an old English word uh, for you know, the, the large grains or the large rocks of the salt. And it's also, of course, you've heard the word peppercorns. So corns is used to refer to Ooh. as a, a grain or a chunk of something, of some spice. Um, and that's where that comes from. So corned beef is basically spiced beef 
it's a salt cured product that uh, that you then spice. So this process is really flexible. There are some really hardcore, um, uh, you know, chefs or um, what do they call it? Charcuterie, the uh, the the process of of curing meat, salting and curing meat. Some uh, saying that corned beef has to be a brisket. Um, I personally don't agree with that. If you have a brisket or you have access to one, by all means, use it because it, it tastes really awesome with a brisket compared to other cuts. It can be done with other cuts, but the brisket really is the best tasting one. Um, but, I mean, when I want some corned beef and when I want to make it, I just go to the store and I grab like a, a bottom round roast or a top round roast or even like a, a English or a chuck roast, something that's two to three pounds, um, real easy to get. Um, so start with that. Uh, so <clears throat> for the sake of our recipe, let's say a three pound roast, any roast that you can get. And, uh, it should be beef. Um, and so what you want to do is insult it. And just like Tiffany was saying about the real salt, make sure that you use good salt for this. Now there is curing salt. Personally, I prefer not to use that. I like to just use the real salt that I have, um, because it's full of these minerals and that gets into the meat. Um, so what I'll do is put it on the uh, on the counter or on a cutting board and rub it down really well with salt, get it into all the cracks, kind of massage it a little bit to loosen the meat up and get all the salt in there really well, and then put it on a rack in the fridge over top of a pan. And what I'll do then is leave that for anywhere from 24 to 48 hours. Uh, that's really up to your discretion how long you want to leave it, up to 48 hours. Um, and what will happen is the salt will draw all the moisture out of the meat and move those fluids through the connective tissues in the meat, and it will loosen up the connective tissues, so it will soften it. Uh, and then it, the moisture, of course, will drip down into the pan. <clears throat> so you can pull that out after that time. Um, just rinse the pan out, wash it down, and then rinse the salt off of the meat. So you want to get all the salt off there, because trust me, I've done this wrong a couple times, and it's really, really <laughs> salty. It's <laughs> It's nigh inedible if you don't wash the salt off. Um, so rinse rinse the salt off at this point and then pat it down um, pretty well with a paper towel or with a towel or whatever you use. Just make sure you get it pretty dry. And uh, then here's the, uh, the recipe for the spice. Um, so I'm going to take uh, four cloves of garlic and I'm going to chop them up real fine. Now, some people do this in a brine, but I like to do a dry pack. Uh, so that again is really up to your discretion and by all means after the show, you know, go online and look up different uh, corned beef recipes. You'll see that a lot of them call for sugar. I leave that out entirely and there's different variations. And like I said, some people like a, a liquid brine, but what I'll do is take, um, four cloves of garlic, chop them up really fine. Uh, and then just mix this all up in a bowl. So two teaspoons of coriander, um, one teaspoon, or let's see, two teaspoons of coriander, uh, one teaspoon of clove, so clove powder or crushed clove, one teaspoon of cinnamon, uh, one teaspoon of ginger, one teaspoon of cardamom, and one teaspoon of turmeric powder. And then I take two bay leaves and crush them up or cut them up on a cutting board, however you want to get that kind of crushed and powdered. And... Um, at the at the very end, then two tablespoons of black peppercorns, so whole whole peppercorns you want to use for this. Um, then mix that all up in a bowl, 
And once you've patted down the roast, uh, rub it in really well. Rub the whole thing down with the spice mix. Get it, get it totally covered. And uh, the modern way to do this is if you have a vacuum sealer or uh, some of those really sturdy like Ziploc uh, freezer bags that you can seal pretty tightly. Um, the vacuum sealer is ideal, really. That just works the best. And we do live in the 21st century, so you might as well use one. Uh, <laughs> but if you don't... <laughs> If you don't have one, uh, use the, the Ziploc bag. And I was like kind of looking this up and researching this the other day. If you don't have either of those things, you can actually take lard and pack the entire roast with lard and make sure it's packed really well and seal out the, the entire outside, which, Doug, you had said they do that with duck confit as well. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they, they submerge it in duck fat as a way of preserving it. There you go. So it, basically what you want to do is seal off, you want to get the, the meat rubbed down with the spice, seal it off from the outside air, and then put it in the fridge for um, seven to ten days. Uh, seven days will turn out good, edible, very nice. Ten days is even better. Um, in my own experience, uh, that's that's a pretty good time range. I usually just go for a week because it's easy to remember. So I'll make it on Saturday, and then I can have corned beef the next Saturday. Um, so... Uh, but I personally, I use a vacuum sealer, um, but I'm, I actually really want to try this, uh, this lard method. Now, if you have lard sitting around, um, get it out, you know, rub it around uh, in a bowl and kind of get it softened up a little bit. Pack the entire roast in the lard so that it's sealed off and then just throw it in the fridge. And then at, at, the, uh, at the seven day mark, when you take it out, um, you don't even have to rinse the spices off. Basically, what you would do then is... Um, I suppose if you had lard on it, you would uh, kind of cut that off or get it off of the outside. If it's in a vacuum bag, take it out of the bag, of course. Um, and then put it in the in the oven at uh, 200 degrees for two and a half hours. Um, and at the end of that time, take it out, let it rest for about 20 minutes, and then uh, slice it up. And that's you have your corned beef, and it'll it'll taste really good. I think you'd be surprised at how close it tastes to the corned beef that you might get on like a Reuben sandwich or something at a restaurant. Um, I've been really mm -hmm. pleased with it so far. And you don't have to cook it in the oven either. You can throw it in a crock pot, um, do pretty much uh, any kind of uh, preparation method that you want with this. Um, sometimes what I like to do is the, the slow cook to uh, at a low temperature, but not cooking it for too long so that when it sets and then it cools off, I can actually slice it with uh, my meat slicer and make lunch meat out of it and then i have sliced corned beef in the fridge so yeah. that's our recipe right, for today so i hope i hope to hear some stories about people making corned beef this week <laughs> yeah that sounds really good <laughs> sounds delicious yeah cool yeah. i'm gonna go check my freezer right, well, for a brisket <laughs> there you go definitely this this is like ridiculously delicious with a brisket i recommend that cut for sure so <laughs> All right. Well, that's uh, that's our show for today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Um, we will be back next week, uh, same time, same day, Monday at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern. So please be sure to uh, to tune in. And thank you for listening to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network. <laughs>